I love what we're doing because it's incredibly fulfilling. It provides a sense of purpose on a daily basis. After selling Unata, which was everything I lived and breathed for a hundred work hour weeks a day for seven years straight, as soon as I gave that up, it left a quote unquote void. And I thought I would never be so in love with a company or a job as I was with that. And New School Foods has done that and more. It gets me out of bed in a different way because this time it's not about my own success or financial security or anything like that. It's about doing something that's bigger than me, bigger than this company. It's about serving a greater purpose. And I'm just blown away at how good that feels. Welcome back to NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. I'm Jim Wilson, and our guest this week is Chris Bryson, founder and CEO of New School Foods in Toronto. Chris grew up in Montreal, and his story is similar to many of our guests in that it's about learning to trust your inner voice, learning that mistakes are lessons, and that failures are just problems that have yet to be solved. Before Chris started New School of Foods, he was CEO of a software company he founded in 2011 that's a great Canadian success story. He and his partners eventually sold that company for a reported $65 million, which was a life-changing event, and it provided Chris with an opportunity to look at a global issue he is very passionate about helping change, and that issue is factory farming. If you're not aware, Many of today's farming techniques account for a significant part of our carbon footprint, and Chris and his team are focused on creating the next generation of plant-based meat alternatives that will help create a new and sustainable climate strategy. Before we get to our conversation, we'd like to thank the TMX Group and the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation for their support. We'd also like to thank our sponsors at Mari BioInnovations, OmniaBio, Nova Nordisk Canada, and Bay Area Health Trust. This episode was recorded in July 2023. Chris, welcome to NGB Ideas. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure. If you don't mind, I'd appreciate speaking for a few minutes about your family. I read that your parents grew up in Montreal, and I'm assuming you did as well. That's correct? That's correct. Both of my parents are business owners. I think their first major foray into business was actually together. Today, they both run separate businesses, but they actually started out by running a sports store in Montreal called The Trading Post. I still remember going there as a kid on Fridays when my dad and mom had their equivalent of an all-hands. They would get together on Friday at the end of the workday for beers and pizza. Grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. Today, my dad runs now a bike store. My mother runs a linen store. It's been in the family. Wow. And where exactly in Montreal did you grow up? It's an area pretty much downtown called Westmount, and we were always there. So they were both entrepreneurs, and you obviously followed in their footsteps. Was that something they consciously encouraged, or was it something perhaps they unconsciously dissuaded you from doing? No, I don't think they consciously encouraged it, or discouraged it for that matter. But I mean, I have three sisters, and out of the four of us, three of us are running our own business. I don't know if there was something in the drinking water, but there was never an explicit push towards that. I just think that for a lot of us, it probably just felt more comfortable. I have a sneaking suspicion that it's somewhat in the blood. Like I think some people are more predisposed to it than others. I would agree with that. So you've got three sisters. 
two of them are also entrepreneurs. What do they do? Yeah. And then the third also has spent the last few years working in the startup community. So we're all very much inclined towards small business. One sister runs a bakery in Montreal that's coming up. It's called Miet. They do incredible sourdough bread. Another sister is an interior designer. She does incredible work in Montreal. And my other sister, she's spent a lot of time also working in the startup community, most recently for a company called Blue Dot that does a lot of health diagnostic software, basically like helping to diagnose if another pandemic's coming around corners. They got a lot of attention during COVID. Where are you in the pecking order? I was the firstborn. Is there a benefit to being the only brother to three sisters or is that a curse? It certainly didn't feel like that when I was growing up. I'm sure on some level, being first makes you comfortable with doing stuff that hasn't been done yet, or there hasn't been an example that's been set as of yet. I'm sure on some level, it's good practice for running your own thing, but I don't think it's a prerequisite. I read a story that I'd love to jump into because I chuckled when I read it. I'll preface it by saying the kids generally like taking things apart and smart kids like putting them back together. I remember when I was a kid, I took my bicycle apart and I was barely able to reassemble it, which probably explains why I'm in sales and not science. But I read that when you were young, you took apart your parents' car phone. How old were you when you did that? I don't exactly remember the age. I must have been like 10 or 11. It was such an odd curiosity. Yeah, I was as a kid who grew up on Legos. And so I was like breaking things down and then rebuilding them. Most of the time, building stuff up as opposed to taking it apart. But it was this deep-seated curiosity. For whatever reason, I really wanted to know what the microphone was and how it was connected to the phone and where it was lodged. I remember pulling it out, the car. It was like one of those retrofits, you know, when they had car phones that were in the middle console of your car. They were incredibly disappointed. <laughs> they were very, <laughs> very unhappy. Because it wasn't even like I had a clear goal beyond just understanding it. Terrible affliction. Did you get it back together? I tried to. I don't know that it was successful. <laughs> I, I love that image. And good on you for trying to put it back together. It sounds like you were one of those kids who was figuratively and literally just drawn towards technology. Is that a fair comment? Absolutely. Yeah. There's no question. Were you also bookish as a kid or were you tearing around the neighborhood with your friends getting in and out of trouble? Probably more on the straight and narrow than on the other side. And I do remember taking apart computers and trying to put them back together. Schooling-wise, I never went deep down the scientific path. I was a bit of a generalist. I saw like I never got into trouble, but <laughs> I tried to toe the middle line, I guess. I'd like to talk about high school for a moment. What school did you attend? I went to a high school called Soundhouse. It was an all-boys school in Montreal. Did you play any sports or belong to any clubs? The school itself was pretty heavy on sports. I played a few sports and I was pretty terrible at the majority of them. I remember there was a soccer coach who once approached me, probably after a disastrous second or third season of soccer, and he said, you really should join the cross-country skiing team. He said, I think you'd be pretty good at it. And so I did at his recommendation. I didn't like being terrible at all the sports I was doing all the time. So I tried that and actually did pretty well. I think I ended up becoming city champion in Montreal. Good for you. For one year, and then I think I was number two the second year, and then got it back the third year. I never knew if I could trust the results. Classing that well was great, but the majority of the really hardcore athletes were in hockey or basketball or something to that effect. So I always discounted my results, but I'm not going to lie. Even though I didn't love cross-country skiing, it was nice to finally be doing well at something. And good on you. 
The first business you started was in high school and involved recording bands. Could you tell us about that? I don't know that I would call it a business. You know, I was really, really drawn to music. I think my entire life, but in particular in high school, I didn't know how to play an instrument, but I wanted to hang out around people who played instruments. The next best thing I could do is cobble together some of the equipment. So I was one of the first kids who started recording music on computers. So I remember cobbling together equipment that I found at Radio Shack or in someone else's basement, something I could find on eBay to start recording bands. And I really did it because I loved the music. It occurred to me that if I was going to keep investing money, that I should probably try to like charge bands. But probably the worst customer set to try to expect money from is high school students who play music. If they're going to have any money, they're going to put it back into their instrument. It made me realize that you could combine your passion with the business. You have to obviously be smarter about it than I was at the time. It was fun. I think it was more of a hobby than a business because I don't know that I made any money from it. I guess you could technically call it my first foray into like trying to start something. So you've been carving out niches your whole life. That's interesting. What was high school like otherwise? Were classes something you enjoyed? Were grades something that came naturally? I would say I did pretty well. I was very good at doing well with minimal effort. I don't think I had a really good work ethic until later in life. And it was easy for me to phone it in and get a B. And I was totally okay with that. There were times when I looked at the kids who were getting A's and I was slightly envious, but it never really pulled together the energy to put in that extra effort. Aside from classes, when I think back to high school, I really disliked it. I hated high school. Really? Yeah. Being in an all-boys high school was not the greatest experience, if I'm being candid. I don't think it's a healthy environment to segregate children, which just naturally encourages bad behavior. I wasn't necessarily the most popular kid in school, didn't necessarily fit into any sort of group. It didn't help the fact that I was pretty late onset puberty. So I was much shorter than the rest of the kids. All these factors tend to lead to lower social status. That changes your entire experience when you're going through school. It's, it's incredible how social the overall dynamic is. I think on some level, I came out of high school with somewhat of a chip on my shoulder. And I think it also really pushed me to want to get out of the education system in Quebec and like leave the province and start fresh. I think on some level, there's some sort of subconscious benefit here that's helping me in my current career in terms of what I went through in high school. And I wouldn't trade it. The education itself was really good, but I can't say that I enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry you went through that. And I'm sure that some of our listeners are probably thinking, yeah, yeah, I, I can relate. I'd like to jump to university. You went to Queens and Kingston, which is a great school, and you did an honors Bachelor of Commerce degree. You were there from 2002 to 2006, correct? That's right. Quebec, at the time, once you were done in grade 11, you'd have to traditionally go into the CJEP program. So you do two years in CJEP, and then you would go to university. And I had already made up my mind that I wanted to leave the province. I just wanted a fresh start. I didn't want to be in the same community where I'd grown up. What I ended up doing instead of the CJEP program is I went to another school where I was able to do what's called a grade 12. So it wasn't sanctioned by the Quebec government, but it was recognized by universities outside of Quebec. So I did my grade 12. And then I think at the time I was curious about potentially even going down to the States and taking a degree that was more on the engineering side or sound engineering I was really interested in. I had a few applications that were to schools in the United States. And then there was Queens, which was more of a business program that I applied to. And ultimately picked Queens because I just knew that one day I wanted to do something 
in the business side in terms of working for myself. And I just felt like that was the best path to make that happen. Did you live on campus or off? So at Queens, I lived on campus. And what was that experience like? It was liberating. First year, you're living right dead set on campus. I mean, most of us in Queens in first year, I think, are in dorms. That was amazing. It was a fresh start. You know, I think it was the first time I had a serious girlfriend. first time I got into all the cool parties. I finally felt like I was myself. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of partying. The program was great. Queen's business program that I joined in 2002, it was just 200 or 300 kids that were just super, super bright. I think it was a real motivator. It wasn't easy for me to phone in and get a B or like be more or less at the top of my class. Now I was worried about being at the bottom. It was a really, really impressive group of individuals. I think it acted as a nice push to want to step things up. I read that in 2006, when you were in fourth year, you attended a class in entrepreneurship. And to put this in context, 2006 was one year before the first iPhone was released. You had an idea about streaming music to phones. Could you tell us about that? Kelly Pack Allen, we still stay in touch, and her class was all around one day. So most business programs, at least at the time, certainly the way Queens was designed, really did emphasize your traditional business disciplines. Accounting, finance, marketing, and the whole notion of entrepreneurship really didn't have much going on, except for this class. So this was like my favorite class by a long chunk. And one of the big courses, you know, it was a four-month semester. The whole semester revolved around one major project, which was building a business plan as a team. So we had to come together as a group of five and come up with their own business idea, write the business plan, put together the financials, pitch it almost as though you were raising capital for it. It was one of the best, most formative experiences I had in university. I think when we came together as a group of five, I'd had this idea. And for whatever reason, I'd been following a lot of technology trends around how cellular networks were going to get upgraded and allow for a lot more data transmission. It sort of occurred to me that, hey, we've been listening to music on iPods. Wouldn't it be so cool if you eventually could stream it down from your phone? So we built out this whole business plan around streaming music to your phone, almost like an internet radio or like a streaming service. It seemed really convoluted at the time, but when I told people about the concept, said that's never going to happen, the amount of memory that would be required, data transmission wouldn't support it, and it would show them the curves and show them where I thought the industry was going to go. Long story short, it was a really, really cool project. It was nice to see that that's actually where the industry ended up going and that the concept was not bonkers even though people at the time told me it was bonkers. I think it was a really great learning lesson because it taught me that there are times when you will be able to see something that other people cannot see. And even though people might tell you it's crazy, it might not be. It might be, don't get me wrong. It's not that everything you come up with and people tell you is a bad idea. Sometimes it is a bad idea, but there are times when you really feel it in your gut, even if other people don't get it, you might be honest. Hi, it's Jim. If you're not aware, this podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. NGBI is an in-person speakers event that brings together leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community with the goal of helping build cross-country and cross-sector connections. The NGBI Summit takes place at the Hamilton Convention Centre on the first Monday in October. If you founded a life sciences startup, you're part of a scaling biotech company, or you're an investor, an industry supplier, 
an academic, a student, or, or just someone who's interested in our life sciences community, we invite you to attend. For details and to purchase tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. I'm guessing in that environment, working closely with three or four other students, you would also learn some lessons about dealing with people. And did that plant a seed in you about you know, potentially wanting to run a company at some point? No, not necessarily. But the Queens program was really great in encouraging a lot of team-based work. So it's a lot of projects where you'd have four or five individuals. Pretty interesting social experiment because sometimes half of the group will lean in, half of them will ease back and wait for your type A's to hold together. You do quickly find out how much of a control freak you are and then how you can manage those inclinations to be able to work with everyone else and get group buy-in. I think indirectly, Queens is really good for that. You entered a competition with that idea, did you not? And, and you won? Yeah, we did. You won some money and that helped defray the student loans that you had at the time. You got it. After graduating, I remember the natural thing to do was to go home and work a summer job. And that's certainly what my parents were hoping I would do. And for better or for worse, I stuck it out in Kingston for another four months because I was hell-bent on getting a job in Toronto. And I was very concerned that if I went back home to Montreal and got a summer job, that I would veer down this path where I wouldn't be completely focused on getting a career. I wouldn't be able to put all my time into that. Much to the chagrin of my parents, I stuck around in Kingston and basically just spent all of that summer applying for other work in Toronto, which eventually got me a job. It was harder to get a job when you weren't going into investment banking or finance or accounting or traditional standard jobs. If you're going into marketing or something more of a generalist role, it was a little bit harder to find and it took time. Winning that competition helped pay the bills during that summer. So that was the summer of 2006. You graduated with a commerce degree and joined a small marketing firm in Toronto called War Loan Co. You were a senior strategic marketing analyst. What does that entail and how did you end up there? Warlow was a, an awesome, awesome experience. It was founded by another entrepreneur. His name is John Warlow. They were a boutique consulting firm that helped major organizations, you know, big banks, Canadian banks, we even worked with the likes of FedEx and Google. They advised people that worked within those companies that were focused on selling to entrepreneurs, selling to businesses. Think of how Roger might create, for example, a small business package. The question was, how do you get into the head of an entrepreneur? Because most founders are just running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Their schedules are just packed. There's a million priorities. And for another business that's trying to sell to them, it can be very difficult to try to break through the clutter and then get an audience and capture their attention. So Warlow Co. was entirely focused on how to speak to entrepreneurs, how to understand them. It was basically marketing strategies around that. So it was a really, really cool experience because I spent a lot of my time interviewing and getting to know other founders. You were there for just over a year and a half before leaving to join Aeroplan, where you were manager of the American Express Partnership. Were you recruited or were you looking to make a move? No, I applied. Warlone Co. was a fairly small operation. It was only about 25 employees. They gave me a tremendous amount of responsibility. I soaked it up like a fire hose. But after about a year and a half, I was concerned that the career opportunities, there weren't as many because it was a small organization. So uh, I started looking beyond. You ended up at Aeroplan and you were there for three years. What was that experience like? 
phenomenal. It was a really, really great organization. I had an incredible boss. It was a great company culture as well, similar to Warlow, and had a lot of responsibility. It was a great learning opportunity and ultimately served as the springboard for my next company. But it was a really enjoyable experience. It was your typical nine to five corporate job. And I'm very thankful that it was that because it afforded me lots of time on the side to start exploring some of those side projects. And I'm looking forward to talking about one of them in particular. In January 2011, you became founder and CEO of Unata. And this is where I think your story starts to get really cool. We mentioned earlier that the iPhone launched in 2007. And if I remember correctly, the first app store was launched by Apple the following year. And by 2010, developing apps was a thing. It was a huge business. And you saw an opportunity. What was it that you saw? Back in late 2009, I think I'd had this business concept that came to me after visiting a conference. It sort of occurred to me that because things were moving from computers to your phones and because you had this thing called the iPhone come out and you had this whole experience around apps emerge, it occurred to me that you were going to have all these digital experiences that had to be created on a completely new medium. And that was going to create opportunities because if I looked at, for example, at the time when I was at Aeroplan, we worked with a lot of retailers who were intent on better targeting their customers and capturing a lot of data about what you buy. Every time you swipe your loyalty card, if you go to the LCBO or wherever it might be, they're keeping track of what you buy, what your preferences are, how often you purchase and so forth. There's a lot of valuable insights that you can extract by accumulating all that data. Then the question is, what do you translate that to? What's the experience that you create? Is it a targeted email or maybe it's a personalized experience, whether that's on your computer or on your phone? So when I saw the emergence of mobile coming out, it occurred to me that a lot of the retailers that we worked with wouldn't necessarily have the in-house shops to figure out how to do mobile and certainly not how to do a personalized digital experience. Usually the best developers would go work for startups. They wouldn't go work for a retailer. So it occurred to me that maybe there's a product that you could build around the future of the loyalty industry where we can use all kinds of information about what people buy and what they look at in order to create more personalized digital experiences and to service that up as a platform in a white label capacity for retailers as a service so that they can better engage their customers. The whole concept behind Unata was personalized digital experiences on any sort of digital medium. And I pitched that aeroplane. At first, this idea, which I became super in love with, for lack of a better explanation, I saw it as a cool project that I could hopefully get promoted to work on. So I built this whole business plan in my spare time and I sat down with my boss and I said, here's a big opportunity, I think, for the future of the company. Could we explore this? And maybe this is something that I could work on. Maybe we could get internal funding to explore this. And I would love to champion it. And to their credit, they, they took it away and they really looked at, at the opportunity. And then they came back and they said, look, we have a lot of other priorities. We agree with you that this is a good idea and a good opportunity, but we have too much else going on right now to properly explore this. And so they basically kindly said no. And then for better or worse, the idea didn't really go away. I even remember at one point, my mother said, hey, are you still working on that idea? Maybe you should pursue that. Thanks, mom. Exactly. <laughs> and then I went back to them and I said, look, I know you can't invest within your four walls, but I still am very intent on pursuing this. What if you invested outside your four walls? I think that was like October, 2010. And they leaned in and they said, 
we're actually interested in exploring this with you and becoming an investor. I had also gotten some other investor interest in addition to that. We then negotiated an investment arrangement. So I left my job, Aeroplane switched from being my employer to my investor. It's almost like you're an accidental entrepreneur. I would say that's definitely the case. How old were you at this time? 26. So you ended up leaving Aeroplan on very good terms, and they became an investor, and you founded this company, Unata, that provides, as you say, white-label e-commerce solutions, but it was to grocery chains in particular. At first, we were looking at all retail, and we didn't necessarily know which sector to double down on. And we always had an inkling that grocery was the right place to go because you purchase your groceries every week and you purchase 50 items at a time. Whereas if you go to Best Buy and you buy a TV, you're not buying a TV every week and you're not buying 50 TVs. So the sheer volume of data that a grocer would have access to was much more substantial. The concern we had around grocery is that it's an industry that is known to be razor thin margins. The concern was, hey, maybe this is a small industry. Maybe they won't have the budgets to properly invest. But after a while, it became clear that there was an impetus for that across the industry to really invest in digital. So we doubled down entirely on grocery. But that wasn't necessarily what we were doing at the outset. It was definitely a good idea to double down on grocery and focus. A few years after that, Amazon Alexa was released in 2014 and Google Home in 2016. And it sounds like both were ideally suited for your platform. I think voice still is an untapped opportunity. I'm not really sure if it became less of an area of investment or focus for the companies that are behind it. Back in the day, I remember talking to our grocery partners about this. We really looked at technologies like Siri and Amazon Alexa and the voice technology behind Google Home. We really saw that as a way to change the way in which you shopped. I don't think it's really lived up to its full potential yet because those voice interfaces aren't really conversational yet. It's possible that will change thanks to new technologies like ChatGPT, but I think voice is still underutilized. The right user experience has not been cracked that makes it the right way in which you can just rattle off a shopping list and have that support your online ordering experience. I'd like to blow your horn a bit here. Six years after you founded the company in 2016, Unata was the 52nd fastest growing North American tech company. It was voted the same year as one of Canada's top 20 most innovative companies. And in 2017, it was voted Canada's second best small business workplace. Kudos to you. Thank you. Can you give us a sense of what that time was like? It was a blast. <laughs> <laughs> Between 2011 to 2015, I would call the first four years, those were tough. Those were really hard. It was incredibly difficult to get any degree of interest in terms of investment. Investors really didn't want to touch our space. And so as a result, we had to be pretty scrappy. It was difficult for us to hire because we didn't have a lot of capital to work with. It was difficult for us to invest ahead of the curve because of the same reasons. So we really ran on a shoestring budget. And there were times when it wasn't really clear if we were going to make it to the next milestone or the next major client. But I think at the same rate, it provided a tremendous amount of clarity all eyes were set on landing our first major beachhead U.S. client. And when we did that, it was all hands on deck to deliver for that customer. It created a very strong degree of focus that I think set us up for success. So by the time we had reached 30 or 40 employees and we were really growing, I think that period of growth, which was an incredibly fun time, 
was really reaping the rewards of the investments we made over the three years prior to really set the right foundation. It was three to four years of really tough times suddenly paying off and manifesting into a really nice growth spurt. At its height, how large was the company? How many staff did you have? When we were acquired in 2018, I think we were just shy of 100. You allude to having some growing pains. What was the biggest challenge at that time? It's funny because the challenges were different from one day to the next. During that period of growth, the biggest challenge was dealing with scale. Sometimes when you build your first generation product, it's not necessarily designed to support 100 customers. Or even if you do have that increased inbound interest, because suddenly you've achieved product market fit and there's more demand for your product, it could be that you're not really, as a company, operationally set up to manage all that inbound demand. And you don't want to say no either. You're trying to build the plane as you're flying it and add in all these capabilities to add scalability. And then you're also trying to get your team to think differently. Think about scalability and how we can create processes so that if you do something once for one client, you turn that into a method and be repurposed for other clients. It was really fun, but it was incredibly challenging. The last thing you want to do when you're running a grocer's e-commerce website that can process millions of dollars in a day is to have that website go down. Every website at some point goes down, so those can be stressful periods. I look back on that period very fondly. It was, it was incredible. Was there a point at which you knew definitively either we're on the right path or yeah, we're here? Did you remember that moment? Overall, for whatever the reason, I always believed that United was going to be successful. I'll juxtapose that with our current company. There have definitely been periods of time where we're investing in science and R&D. For all I know, this is going to completely not work out. But with Unata, there was this strange, constant conviction that it was going to work out. In terms of particular moments, I remember flying back from a sales pitch in Texas, from a pitch to a major, major Texas grocery chain that eventually became our customer, and just walking away from that pitch, knowing we were going to close them. We hadn't signed it yet, but I knew in my heart that we were going to land them. And that as a result, it was really going to set our business on a different path because of how big this account was. I still remember looking at the plane window as we were like taking off. I remember that crystal clear. A lot of stuff I don't remember, but that moment was pretty awesome. And I think that was in 2016, a couple of years before we were acquired. In January 2018, Instacart acquired you. How did that come about? What's the backstory there? Were you looking for someone to step in or was it a call out of the blue? Because we were a VC-backed company, we always knew at some point the plan was to have an acquisition take place. We did keep our ear to the ground. I think that 2018, we had two paths in front of us. It was either we were going to raise capital and really go hard at it ourselves, or we were going to hitch our wagon to a rocket ship. And we explored both of those in parallel. At the end of the day, Instacart felt like it was the right path because I also want to secure a future for what we had built for the benefit of our current clients. And then a lot of the clients that we knew were interested in using the technology. And the benefit of hitching ourselves to, to Instacart is that they had a pretty wide client base to begin with. So we felt like the technology was going to find its natural home inside of Instacart. In fact, it's now a core focus for them in terms of their future growth. Whereas going at it on our own, we would have had to go head to head with players like Instacart. It's not that we weren't up for the challenge, but it was not going to be an easy battle 
going at it as partners instead of going head to head was the better path. I can't imagine what it must have felt like signing off on those documents. I read that the purchase price was $65 million. From that, I'm assuming it was a pretty good exit for you. So that was the reported price. I can neither confirm or deny. We never answered that. It was a good outcome. For me personally, it was life-changing and also allowed me to do the things that, that I'm doing currently with New School Foods and a lot more. It was a great Canadian success story. If you're enjoying today's episode, and we hope you are, we'd appreciate you telling your friends about us and promoting us on social with the hashtags NGBI and NGBIdeas. Let's get back to the show. You stayed on in your role for two years, and during that time, you reported to Instacart's chief business officer, Neelam Ganathiran. Was it tough to no longer be the boss? Once you've operated a certain way for seven years and you're used to making quick decisions and just seeing them be implemented, to now have this step where you need to ask for permission, that was challenging. Working with Neelam was amazing. He laid out a very clear strategy. There was a lot of other engagements and there were a lot of other politics that had to be navigated, especially as we looked at integrating all the different pieces of the business together. That's the trade-off you get when you attach your little bandwagon to a rocket ship. Not everything that you're working on is suddenly going to be a huge priority or there wouldn't necessarily be all the right sort of systems and processes in place to accommodate things. We were the first major acquisition that Instacart made. There were a lot of learning lessons on both sides as to how to get things to work. Lots of learning lessons. No longer being the boss takes some adjustment, that's for sure. So you're working with these grocery chains. You've got some money in the bank, some time to take a step back. And you started looking at the global food system and the impact it has on health and the environment. What prompted that introspection? At the time that Unata was sold, I'd been vegetarian, I think, for about four years. Many people just want to continuously improve themselves. Because I'd made this diet change, I was very curious about people who went to the next step. People who are vegan often get this sort of reputation for being pretty intense or crazy or whatever you want to call it. If people are self-selecting into a group that might be characterized that way, they must have a damn good reason. I always told myself, okay, if I sell the business, I'm going to explore what that lifestyle looks like, figure out if that's something that that's of interest. Shortly after selling the company, I sat down and I watched a few documentaries it really exposed me to the realities of factory farming. And there's just so much that I had completely wrong. So much that I thought about our food system that was just a complete myth. And I think there are a lot of things that we don't know about how our food is produced and the impact that comes along with that. Our food comes nicely packaged, but like the story comes nicely packaged. And it's not nicely put together as we might like to think it is. So that really struck a chord with me when I realized that there's a lot of harm that goes along with that. There's a lot of harm to us. There's a lot of harm to the planet. There's a lot of harm that happens to the animals that are part of our food system. The more I understood it, the more I realized that this is one of the world's largest problems that no one wants to talk about because it involves our diets, it involves something we do three times a day. And anytime you talk about taking away someone's cheeseburger, they're going to get apprehensive. Food is a very, very sensitive topic. And I think that's why people who are plant-based get such a bad reputation because they get associated with something that people don't want anyone else interfering with, which is completely understandable. But overall, I think when I learned about the realities of factory farming, I 
just realized that I had to focus my time on this. It just burrowed its way into my heart, and it's been there ever since. You left Instacart after a couple of years and started going down this path you're describing as an angel investor in what are referred to as alternative protein companies. I'd appreciate you explaining what that term encompasses. What does it mean for those who don't know? The first thing I began to put my time towards was finding other companies that were similar to Impossible Foods or Beyond Meat, big, successful alternative protein companies who had created plant-based burgers. When we say alternative proteins, we're talking about recreating the essence of meat or dairy, but using plant-based ingredients, recreating the taste, the texture, the cooking experience. And the reason I decided to get involved from an investment perspective is I felt that we couldn't rely on just two companies to entirely change the food system because there's more to food than burgers and chicken nuggets. There's a lot of other alternatives and technologies that need to be discovered. I got involved as an angel investor. Angel investors effectively write small checks that help early, early, early stage founders invest in the first steps of the business. So getting a product put together, and then eventually you go to larger investors. I decided for better or worse to entirely focus on alternative proteins because as I learned more about the space, it occurred to me that the alternative protein sector is one of the most important climate strategies that we have towards creating a sustainable climate. Obviously, that's pretty well known and topical now, but back in 2018, I still think it's not well understood. Our food system is one of the largest contributors to climate change. Food accounts for between 25 to 30% of all carbon emissions, and half of that is due to meat consumption. So if we're going to have a more sustainable climate, we actually need to find better ways to eat. So alternative proteins is a strategy towards making that possible. In May 2020, you became an advisor to Plantable Foods. Could you tell us about that organization? Plantable Foods was one of the companies that I met while I was doing angel investing. I was probably more excited about their story than almost any other startup that I'd come across. Once you get involved in this industry, you, you realize very quickly is that the industry has a very small, quote unquote, toolkit in order to create plant-based meat alternatives. There are two categories of tools in the toolkit. There's the ingredients that you have to work with, and then there's the technology that you have to process those ingredients and assemble everything. New School Foods for Better or Worse is entirely focused on the processing side of things, but Playtable, what was exciting about them is that they developed this novel ingredient. Their goal is to create the most sustainable source of protein that is plant-based because today's ingredients have deficiencies. What's really cool about Plantable is they have an ingredient where they grow through little leaves, water lentils on top of a pond. They're able to grow this one protein in particular called rubisco. And rubisco is the world's most abundant protein. You find it in any leafy green. But no one has developed the technology to extract the protein from those sources. When I came across their story, they seem to have cracked the code on how to cost-effectively extract the protein and provide that as an ingredient for the industry. And that ingredient is an incredibly successful and powerful ingredient that in turn allows us to make better plant-based meat alternatives. Thanks for that explanation. In January 2021, you became the founder and CEO of New School Foods, which is focused on creating whole muscle seafood from plants. This is fascinating to me. Could you tell us more about your company? Love to. New School Foods is entirely focused on creating whole muscle alternatives. So that's effectively a filet or a steak. 
the reason that we focused on that as a group of applications is because if you believe that in order to have a sustainable food system, we need to change the way in which we eat, given the climate footprint of animal agriculture today, then the only way that we can solve that if we're creating plant-based meat alternatives is to address the largest category of meat consumption, which itself is whole cuts. So whole cuts accounts for about two thirds of all meat sales. If you're only creating ground products like burgers and chicken nuggets, you're actually attacking the minority. New School Foods was focused on how do we get to that next evolution as an industry where we can create these whole cut products? When I started the company, our thesis was that today's existing tools and technologies for creating whole cuts are inadequate. We don't have the right processing technologies to create a whole cut product. We started off as a company by exploring new technologies that would allow us to create a whole cut product. We developed this entirely new processing technology, which we got a patent on. And we spent the last three years really kicking the tires on learning how this technology works and how we can create the most faithful, authentic plant-based salmon that you can find, one that looks, cooks, tastes, and flakes just like the real thing. And also understanding how that platform over time is also going to allow us to create all kinds of other alternatives that go beyond salmon. I'd like to do a deeper dive here. Plant-based protein has an estimated market size, if my numbers are correct, of about $4 billion U.S., probably much higher now. And I think Beyond Meat is considered the leader in the alternative protein industry. I've had some of their products and enjoyed them. I guess you're trying to come up with the next impossible foods or Beyond Meat, but I'd like to play devil's advocate. Beyond Meat went public in early 2019, and in July of that year, the share price peaked at just under $235 US. The share price closed yesterday at $15.46, which is a 90% drop from three years ago. And company revenue over that period has been growing at 4.1% per annum, which means it's not even close to being profitable. If Beyond Meat is in that situation and they're the market leaders, why are you choosing to have a horse in this race? It's a great question. The first thing that I would say in responding to that question is it's very important that we not assess an entire industry based on the performance of one single company. The reason why we're focused on Beyond Meat as a company is because it's effectively the only publicly traded plant-based meat company out there. We don't really have a proper look under the hood at the other companies that are out there. Now, that's not to say that the industry might not have been overhyped at some point or that investor expectations might have been misaligned because that was definitely the case. As you would with any technology, you tend to go through what's called the S-curve of adoption, this hype curve where at first everyone gets super, super excited and then you get a little bit of a bubble burst when you go through what's called the trough of disillusionment. That's where we currently are as an industry. But then the next generation of technologies or companies push through and before you know it, those technologies become pervasive and ubiquitous. I think there's a lot to be learned from how Beyond was at first very successful, and then maybe there were some missteps. I think there were a lot of market pressures for them to grow maybe faster than they should have, and that can cause quality issues when you're starting to expand quickly through partnerships. The emphasis was entirely placed on growth at all costs, and that takes your eye off the ball from things like quality. If you talk to most people today, they would tell you that if they've tried a plant-based meat alternative, it still doesn't quite emulate the look and the cook and the taste of meat. There are some products, however, that are getting quite close, in particular, Impossible Foods. Impossible Foods had a bit of a different go-to-market strategy where they focused on more of a tortoise than a hare story, if you compare the two. 
So Impossible, I believe, went slower in order to win the race, where they doubled down on quality. They didn't launch directly through grocery stores. They launched through restaurants. They used the feedback that they got from chefs to continuously improve the product. I think you saw Impossible really double down on creating the highest quality product. And in the end, that's going to serve them best because if you look at the results from blind taste tests, Impossible Burger is the only one that usually stands a chance of fooling people that it is a beef-based burger. Now, today's interview is happening July 12th. Very quickly, what I'm saying is going to become dated. I even tried Beyond's latest burger last weekend. It's heads and tails significantly better than the last version of the burger. These are tech companies. And just the same way that Facebook's interface is significantly different today than it was two years ago, the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger are going to be dramatically different next year and the year after that. My point here is that you have people looking at this industry saying, we should wave the white flag. It's not really going to be as successful as people thought. But this is the first inning. And these are companies that are going to continuously get better and better and better. They're not out of business. They're learning. They're adapting. And this is completely normal in any industry that's completely new technology, like I said, in terms of the S-curve. To answer your question maybe more succinctly, Beyond is not an entirely faithful approximation of the entire industry. I think there's lots of good things that can be picked up when you look at what's helped them be successful and also what's different with other companies that are successful. If you create a great product that looks, cooks, tastes, and has the same texture as the real thing, there is a market for that. We need to build better products. And as soon as we do, there's going to be a strong market for that. So don't judge the auto sector by the Model T because there's a Tesla coming at some point. I should have had that answer. And that's, that's much better said. <laughs> <than. laughs> and I appreciate you going down that path because it gives me a sense that you're not trying to get a piece of the current pie. You're trying to bake in a whole new pie. We have to. That's pretty cool. And that's really cool because you have been a, a startup before. You're back at Square One. You're running a new company. And I'm wondering if you can lean back in your chair and outline what it is that you are really enjoying about your job these days. I love what we're doing because it's incredibly fulfilling. It provides a sense of purpose on a daily basis. After selling Unata, which was everything I lived and breathed for 100 work hour weeks a day for seven years straight, as soon as I gave that up, it left a quote unquote void. And I thought I would never be in so in love with a company or a job as I was with that. And New School Foods has done that and more. It gets me out of bed in a different way because this time it's not about my own success or financial security or anything like that. It's about doing something that's bigger than me, bigger than this company. It's about serving a greater purpose, and I'm just blown away at how good that feels. One of the things I really enjoy about doing this podcast is watching people light up when they talk about something that they're passionate about, and you just lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to turn that question around. What's the most challenging part of your job these days? I think the other side of the coin is the same reason that I get a tremendous sense of purpose out of the job is a reflection of nature, the problem we're going after. If you look at climate change, factory farming, whichever cause aligns closest to your heart, these problems are really significant and kind of terrifying. If you really dig into the science and you look at the potential impact that we're facing over the next few decades, it can be debilitating. It can be scary. That's why it's nice to be working on a solution, but there are definitely moments when it looks like that hill might be too tall to climb 
or that similarly, that what we're trying to do, which is reverse engineer nature, this is no simple task trying to recreate the essence of meat and do it in just 24, 36 months to meet an investor timeline and to meet customer expectations. And in some ways, try to defy the laws of chemistry and physics. It is an enormously complex challenge, whether it's the food science, whether it's the regulatory side, whether it's the marketing, whether it's the financing, we're having to build physical infrastructure to support this. This is significantly more challenging than building a software business. That's something I say often. And the notion that we might fail is terrifying, not right at a personal level, but we look at every company and we want all the companies in the space to be successful because we think that the problem is so significant. We want to see a happy ending. Hi, it's Jim. We'd like to take a moment to explain to our listeners why this podcast exists. The obvious part is that NGB Ideas is to help promote the next Great Big Ideas Life Sciences Innovation Summit that's taking place in Hamilton this October. But it's really about making people aware of McMaster Children's Hospital. MacKids is one of the top critical care pediatric hospitals in Canada, and our ask is this. If you have the interest and ability to provide financial support to a worthy cause, we would like to encourage you to look at supporting MacKids. If you'd like more information about this organization, please go to hamiltonhealth.ca slash MacKids. That's M-A-C-K-I-D-S. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. I read that you believe one of the most difficult things to learn, especially for young founders, is trusting yourself. And that's tough to do if you don't have any experience. How do you learn to trust yourself? Usually you learn the hard way by seeing that the decision you would have made had you trusted yourself turned out to be correct. For example, going back to earlier in the interview, when I saw that music streaming became successful, it was this interesting little moment I had where I saw, oh, if I had pursued that, maybe there would have been something there. Maybe my instinct was correct around where those trends were going to lead. That can happen in day-to-day meetings in my last job where I was meeting with a software developer who was building out a solution for your new grocery client. And we're talking about how it's going to be implemented. And let's say you might not have the chops or the background or the engineering degree or the software pedigree to really call BS on someone's plan or to say, hey, maybe you should do it this way differently. When you lack that experience, the tendency is to keep your mouth shut. After a few of those experiences where I kept my mouth shut or where people shot me down because said, oh, Chris, you don't know anything because you don't have a degree in software engineering. Sometimes after a few of those happen, you realize that gut instinct is about more than a degree. It's about seeing trend lines. Your gut is an incredibly powerful thing. It takes time to learn to trust yourself. I'm not under the illusion that by me telling other people to trust their gut that it's just going to magically happen. It's a process. But I think if you're more consciously aware of keeping track of when you didn't trust your gut and how did that turn out, taking time to reflect on that that helps to build the confidence. As you're chatting, I'm thinking about someone who was asking me about commercial real estate. And they said something and I said, you know what? You're confusing information with knowledge and they're not the same. Information are numbers and knowledge is based on experience, as you've said. And experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. You don't want experience. You want access to my experience because 
you don't want to have to spend money needlessly. And making mistakes is part of the process. And mistakes are not about failure. I think they're about education. And we ask many of our guests what their best mistake has been. And it's not about failure. It's maybe about an unintended win. And if there's anything that comes to mind, I'd appreciate hearing about it. It's actually a really difficult question because I've always looked at those mistakes along the way as just a stepping stone towards an eventual solution. They're not categorized in my brain as failures. Certainly try to never look at it that way. If I go back to Yunana, for example, if I got to do it all over again, what would you do differently? I think that there's a natural tendency as an entrepreneur to underestimate the challenge, which is probably why you end up doing the things that we do. That has serious implications when it comes to timelines and costs. Looking back to United, there was a period of time when we were just accelerating like crazy. And we could have had our pick of the litter in terms of getting access to additional investor capital. And we were just so stuck in our mentality of remaining bootstrapped and keeping things capital efficient that I think we missed the boat on being able to get access to more capital that would allow us to invest further or better weather the storm when the growth leveled off. Had we raised at that time back in 2015, when I think we had the chance to do so, we probably would have had a better outcome with Instacart or had a more mature company at that point in time. I do look back at that often and try to learn from that to make sure that we're not overconfident about our position. You mentioned earlier working 100-hour weeks. The life of an entrepreneur is not for everyone. There are incredible highs and suffocating lows that contest even the strongest resolve. I'm wondering if there's any advice you would give to university graduates who may be listening to this podcast about how to deal with failure, or we call them lessons. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult for me to answer that question directly because I think I was always taught to never, ever, ever give up. And that might be a shortcoming or a big flaw unto itself, but I was always taught to push through. If I go back to cross-country skiing, which was all about pushing through like complete exhaustion, or if I look at some of the other projects that I worked on, you always want to find a creative solution to the outcomes. I think the important way to look at failure, if you want to use that strong of a term, is to look at it as a problem that just hasn't been solved yet. And it's your job as the founder to solve that problem. The fact that you're experiencing that tribulation or that hardship That's your job as a founder to be there to navigate those bumps. It's not meant to be easy. What you are experiencing is the essence of being a founder. If you can solve those things, then you create value. And if you create value, you can grow and just keeps compounding from their own. So it's about education and ensuring that you're not defined by that moment. I think it's about perspective, looking at that problem as being part of the job. You have to almost walk in every day expecting you're going to get knocked down, that you're going to get punched to the ground, and that it's just normal to pull yourself back together and just keep taking a beating (laughs) until, (laughs) until you're the stronger one. I don't know how else to put it. It's a matter of perspective. You can't look at setbacks as failure. You have to look at them as just a problem that has not been resolved yet. Along perhaps a similar line, work life Balance is a perhaps an overused term and often ill-defined and certainly an elusive goal for most people, especially for startup founders. Balance is really about mental health. And you've had a very successful startup and an exit, and you're now back in the trenches. Have you ever thought in your current capacity, you know, man, why did I do this again? 
What is it that drives you? You mentioned earlier it's a greater good, but can you ratchet that back to, yeah, I'm getting out of bed today because you're just going to work through it? How do you stay on the right side of that line? You have to be able to get some sort of innate satisfaction out of the day-to-day stuff. I don't think anyone is entirely altruistic. I Certainly, I'm not. So I know that I get personal satisfaction out of creating things. It just so happens I'm trying to direct that towards something that's more positive than maybe other sectors. I'm trying to leverage that desire for creation into the current job. That's not to say that it's a quick fix towards navigating the hurdles you alluded to. I mean, mental health is difficult, especially in this job. It's a very isolating job. And certainly when you're going through high degrees of stress, that can trigger anxiety, it can trigger bouts of depression. I've certainly been through all of the above. But at the end of the day, your heart has to be in it and there has to be some sort of utilitarian outcome that you get out of the day-to-day. If you're not getting that, then it's probably worth thinking about changing the business into something that you do love. You have to love the business. There has to be that affinity towards what you're building. Otherwise, you're just hurting yourself. So make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And it doesn't need to be just one reason. It could be a multitude. You do have to be able to get something out of it. You tend to see that from founders who are in love with their products as opposed to like getting rich. There are some people who are obsessed with getting rich that do very well. Don't get me wrong. But I think that's a harder path to walk than being in a business because you're obsessed with whatever it is that you're building. If you're product obsessed as opposed to money obsessed, I think you're going to be much more successful, both financially as well as mentally and spiritually. That's a great answer. We've been talking about university students a bit, and I often ask our guests if you could have a do-over and go back to university. Are there any courses you would make a point of taking as a bit of advice to those, again, who may be listening? I think it's very, especially if you're an entrepreneur, it's very important to be product-obsessed. It's not just important to be product-obsessed, but it's important to appreciate your product at a really fundamental level. We're building lead analogs. Over the last two, three years, I've had a ridiculous crash course in food chemistry. And I wish I had paid more attention in chemistry class in high school, and I wish I'd taken a chemistry class in university. But I think that the reason that I'm able to absorb some of the concepts is because I've always been inclined towards understanding things at a really fundamental level. I think that getting some degree of exposure to hard science or like software engineering, something that helps you understand how the different fundamental moving pieces come together and create something larger. If you can have a better appreciation for how things work at that low level, it will be easier for you to communicate with your staff, gain their respect, be able to provide actionable insight, and then better appreciate the complexity of what they're building so that when you're talking about timelines and deliverables, you're not committing them to something they can't deliver on. I think some exposure to hard sciences is usually something good. I read that someone told you it's important to be more American and less Canadian. What do they mean by that? Firstly, let me be clear. I love being Canadian. I love Canada. I am very proud to be Canadian, and I feel very, very lucky to have grown up here. But culturally, we are different from Americans, and there are certain traits that Americans have that I would say they can learn from. We are culturally much more conservative, reserved. From a business standpoint, that can lead to outcomes that can hurt your business. We as a culture would benefit from at times being more direct and blunt. That can be important for giving employees feedback. Sometimes avoiding difficult truths can lead to information not being shared. And any relationship dies because of poor communication. 
I think we could benefit as a culture from being more direct, certainly in a business environment. We could also benefit from being a little bit less conservative, if I'm being honest. A lot of our investors are foreign investors, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I wish the majority of our investors were Canadian, but culturally speaking, we don't move as quickly as other cultures do. And I think that also applies to entrepreneurs. Sometimes we worry about shooting for the moon and we scale it back. And it's important to know that only by shooting for Mars are you going to get to the moon. And only by shooting the moon are you going to get across the ocean. Point is, it's important for us to be more ambitious and recognize that our ambitions are being inhibited by our culture. So I always try to check whether or not I'm being too Canadian or being American enough, if you will. It's not to say you should do that across the board. I just mean in those specific types of engagements. I would agree 100% with what you're saying. We've all got a bucket list. What's on yours? Ending factory farming. That's a great goal. There's nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) Regular listeners to this podcast know that we end each show with the same question, and this is that question. Chris Bryson, what's the next great big idea on your horizon? I fundamentally think plant-based meat alternatives. That and nuclear power. We need a sustainable planet. Everything else that doesn't address sustainability is irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. If we're not around to enjoy it. What's there to enjoy? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I hope that we're both around a very long time to see this happen. And I am personally looking forward to seeing New School Foods products on my store shelf and on my plate. I know that you're really busy, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I hope it wasn't too painful. No, it was great, Tim. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Chris Bryson, founder and CEO of New School Foods in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about Chris and his team, please go to newschoolfoods.co. You can follow them on social at New School Foods, and you can follow us on social at Lab Occupier. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to contact us, my email is best, and that address is jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. Thanks so much for listening.